Hey guys, Bear Grylls here, just to say, super excited for Charles Thorpe's podcast coming soon. You guys are going to love this. What a great guy he is and so many great stories. So enjoy these and remember, above all, never give up. Now, I personally believe that there's nothing better than a great adventure, whether it's to another country or into the backyard. It can have an amazing ability to change not just the way that we see the world, but also the way that we see ourselves. That is exactly what you're going to hear about from our incredible guests. On Great Adventures, I'm going to be hanging out with actors, athletes, thought leaders, and of course explorers, some old friends, and some new, to discuss how being adventurous benefited their lives. My name is Charles Thorpe. For over a decade, I've been chasing down epic stories professionally for magazines and television shows, and now I'm bringing those conversations here. I open my blind, the backside of my blind, and I see it's just a huge elephant, and she's not happy. It turns out that where we're situated, we're blocking her daily route into the watering hole. You could actually feel the ground shake when she came across us. That was National Geographic photographer Stephen Wilkes, and it's time for Great Adventures. I'm such a fan of your day to night series, the ones from all over the world. I think Serengeti really yeah, stands out to that me. Was that was one I wanted to talk to you about too, with in terms of game changing, life changing experiences. So let's um, talk about it. I mean, that photo, Serengeti, day to night, you just capture this landscape in its transition. Tell me how that location was picked for the series. Believe it or not, that is a national park. That's the Tanzania National Park. So we had absolutely no idea what or who or any animals would come into that watering hole. So that gives you an idea of just how crazy that image is on a lot of different levels. It's in the middle of the Tanzania National Park. And what happened was uh, I had been doing cities around the world. I became fascinated by the idea of changing the narrative of my photographs. Instead of human narrative in my landscapes, what if I could capture animals that way? So I started doing lots of study, as I always do, and looking at when's the right time to be there and what can I expect to see. A lot of times I will come up with an idea and there's two things I do. One is I, I end up actually doing lots of homework. I will get to a point where I may have some type of visualization of what I think the picture could be, but I like to stay very open. So I don't like to commit to anything, right? Because I like to react to what I see as opposed to allow my mind to define what I should see, right? I go through this process. I send out, I get a local a producer who starts scouting for me and we're looking at pictures and nothing's getting me really excited. And of course, it is challenging to find a multitude of wildlife in one place. And, you know, lo and behold, it's, um, it's uh, the middle of February and we're going to make the trip. And I, I end up going a few weeks ahead of time. I say to people, you know, you don't go out and do that kind of a wildlife photograph. It's like playing Carnegie Hall without practicing the piano. You know what I mean? You're without practicing. So for me, the three weeks I was there before I did that picture allowed me to really hone my skill and become like this intuitive with the way I see and photograph wildlife. I could actually anticipate by the end of three weeks, I understood the way the movements were, the animals, how they react. It's like anything. The more practice, the better you get at it, right? You can really anticipate that helped me enormously because when I go out for, you know, 26 hours to create one of these pictures, 
I don't spend a week there shooting one picture. It's things that happen and I have to get the moment when it happens. Mm -hmm. And so I, I really kind of honed my skills for those first three weeks, developed an intuitive sense and really started to understand what were the natural migratory patterns of these animals. I discovered this watering hole. It turns out we were there during a five week drought. And so there was no rain. Uh, and when there's no rain in the Serenera and the Serengeti, the animals, they know where certain watering holes are and they just, they stay by the watering hole because, you know, they know when it's going to rain three, four days in advance. But when you're on a five-week drought like that, you know, they're not even sensing that. So they're just going to stay where they know there's water. I discovered this watering hole by a fluke, and it was uh, off the main road of the National Park. And I saw a zebra at sunset come out, and it was glistening, the kind of glistening you see when mercury from a thermometer was to spill out on a table. I mean, I'd never seen anything like it. It was stunningly beautiful. And I just started following this zebra to this watering hole. But I'm on a main road and I see the hole and I'm looking at it. I'm going, wait a second. I turn around and I look behind me and I go, great mountain range. Sun is going to set right behind the tree. And I'm like, if I could get off road behind that hole and shoot from the opposite side, this could be the picture. I went back over three days to watch the animals and see what the time of day was like, how things move throughout the day. When did they come into feed? What was the ebb and flow? And it was that knowledge that really gave me confidence, I believe, to pretty much if everything stayed as it was and, and the drought continued and there was no rain in the forecast, that these animals would continue to behave in a very similar fashion. It took about seven days of work for the national park to give me permission. They don't ever allow people to go off-road like this. And so we were able to um, actually situate our truck. I had a platform built with like speed rail and on top of it, this is on like one of those uh, Land Rovers. And on top of it, I had a, what's called a crocodile blind. In this crocodile blind, uh, I spent with my assistant 26 hours with a small 16 by 20 window and that's all the viewer that I saw of this scene. And I photographed for 26 hours, having no idea who or what would come our way. But it was a life-changing experience because over the 26 hours uh, of just looking at a scene, you know, and what people have to understand is I work in the most traditional manner, Charles. I, I handcock a lens. I see something. I take a single photograph. Now, I might shoot 2,200 single photographs over a 26-hour period. But at the end of the day, it's not the act of photographing, which is the most traditional manner I use. I use a digital back. But other than that, it is the most traditional image capturing there is. There's no automated anything. It's about what I see with my eye, click, capturing the moment. It's when I come back, that's when we meld time and when I create this concept in photography called day to night. I'd love if you could just try to think back on that 26 hours and what moments, do you have particular moments that really stood out to your appearances of various creatures that you're like, oh, this is really, this is the scene that I was going for. This is yeah, what I yeah. want to convey well, about Africa. When I, when I knew, I'll tell you when I knew I was in for something that was going to be completely different. We pulled up at about two o'clock in the morning, okay, pitch black. You have to understand, these animals the only time they see lights is if it's a poacher at that hour of night. There is nobody right. in the park. They do not allow anyone in the park at sunset. We pull up. We have our setup. We set up at sunset that afternoon So, because you can't set up at 2 o'clock in the morning. Obviously, it's too dark. And as we pulled up, we had a car that drove us into our, our rigged vehicle. 
And as we pulled in, the light skimmed across the watering hole. And all you saw were these eyes glowing, okay? <laughs> and now I thought they were Crocs or something, you know? Uh, that's immediately what I thought. We got out of the car and I climbed up into the, my vehicle and into my, uh, my blind. I realized they were hippopotamuses. An entire family of about 12 hippopotamuses were in the water. Now, at that moment, I didn't really know the most dangerous animal probably in the wild is a hippopotamus. Is an, if a hippo comes after you, there's a 95% chance you're going to die. 95%. That's how good their kill rate is. You know, when you see them in the water, they look like a giant rock that's just barely clearing the surface. I listen to them have a buddy system. The parents spoke to the kids. And you could hear these different sounds of them communicating. Are you all right? Yes, I'm okay. How about you? To make sure that each one was okay. And I thought to myself, part of what drew me to making this photograph and what opened my world was this moment because I was seeing a level of communication that most people never, ever see. That animals have this incredible depth of communication that we don't really even understand yet. There is a narrative story within my photographs of what a species is doing, how they communicate, their mating rituals, the way they teach each other how to fly, if they're the bird series that I did. All those things are all contained within my pictures. And it's really about how they live. And it's a narrative story of that day, but it is truly a deeper story about specific species and my fascination with sharing the way they are, the way they exist, how amazing they are, you know? Seeing that initial communication, I was like, oh my gosh. And then as the day went on, I watched all these competitive species. At first, zebras would come in and they started drinking and the wildebeest would always coexist with the zebras. And I kept wondering, I said, God, they kind of share the same food. Why do they always hang out together? And then I found out that one has lousy eyesight, the other has great eyesight. One has terrible ear hearing, the other has great hearing. So they, they basically cover for each other, right? One's weakness is the other's strength and vice versa. And right. that's why they coexist so perfectly. And that's why they always will share grazing areas because they protect one another. I started to get into the rhythm of the animals. I didn't know what or how many animals would actually come into that area. And as the day wore on in the morning, I had the zebras on the right side, which was beautiful because that's where time starts on the right side. It goes on a Z axis diagonally across the image. But as time moves in the afternoon, I knew the left side of the image, I needed something on that left side to help really anchor my photograph. And um, at about, this was crazy, it was like, Afternoon, it was about 4, 4.30, I hear this just huge, like, elephant from behind me. And I open my blind, the backside of my blind, and I see it's just a huge elephant, and she's not happy. It turns out that where we're situated, we're blocking her daily route into the watering hole. And she's, <laughs> she's concerned and frustrated, and she's flapping her ears like this, and I'm thinking... If her trunk goes straight up in the air, I'm running out of this thing because she's <laughs> going to ram us. I see what's happening. I immediately realize she's coming into the water. And she literally drops right down into that left area of my photograph at the perfect moment, the perfect light, everything, and bang, I got that frame. And, and it was just magical. Slightly later in the afternoon, there's this moment where there's a sense that the animal's 
they just flee. They just like explode out of the water. Everybody runs. I'll tell you the other amazing um, moment was, and I think it really was one of the defining elements in my photograph. And that is there's a herd of elements marching through in the background. So when I do these photographs, I shoot with a very large format camera. And as a result, I have so much data. When you shoot 2,200 photographs, you have to actually clear the computer off every couple of hours just to maintain you know, the speed. Normally, it's a moment I dread. In the early days, I, was, I wasn't shooting on cards. I was shooting directly into the computer. Mm. I didn't have a card backup. So my assistant would have to actually unplug my you know, capture and say, okay, uh, I need five minutes. Well, those five minutes I would start sweating for, you know, I would just be like, Oh God, I'm, I'm so terrified. I'm going to miss something. Some great moment's going to happen. And my assistant looks at me and he says at about four and a half minutes in, he goes, okay, Steven, you're live again. At that point, nothing was going on. It was really dead quiet. And I decided I'm going to just see what's going on. And I lean my head out of the blind just slightly to see what's, I see a family of elephants, that family marching, and I just started shooting, shooting, shooting. And, we, and I got that one moment where they came across 30 seconds later. I don't get that picture, wow. you know? So that's the kind of like magic and luck that you need to have sometimes. And, and it just was, I, I mean, concept that it happened, not only that I was able to get it, but if you look at the photograph, it's based on time. It's exactly where they were based on the time within my photograph. Those are things that happened throughout the, uh, the whole experience there. But I, I say it changed me in a way because um, I had seen something. Uh, I saw a level of communication in wildlife that I never even dreamed existed. And it inspired me to want to tell that story with other species. And really, if you look at that photograph, it was the impetus to doing all the work that I've been doing over the last few years, which is really evolving day to night, traveling all over the world and capturing historical events to now focusing on endangered species and habitats. And that's really what I'm doing now those first few weeks that you were in the area, what did you do? How did you acclimate yourself? What elements were you excited to bring through in that photo that maybe you sensed over the time there? You start to think about the why, you know, what's going to motivate that action. And if you stay in this one place and just look at this one place, how many things could possibly come into that, that frame, you know? And that was the great challenge with this. When you're shooting wildlife, uh, many of my colleagues uh, at the Geographic who spend their whole lives just photographing one species, when they hear what I'm doing, they go like, so how many weeks are they going to give you for that one, Stephen? And they're like, uh, it's not weeks. It's called day to night. It's like, you know, and, and they laugh because, you know, the amount of luck that has to happen when I do these pictures uh, is, you know, I, I can't even begin to tell you. As I spent the time, those three weeks, and we were looking and looking and looking and, you know, I was shooting and I was kind of getting a sense of, hey, what's out there, right? Like the abundance, is, uh, is the migration big? Is it moving? Where is it? I remember I, it really gave me a sense of scale was we took a hot air balloon ride. This was in Tanzania. And it was spectacular. I can't recommend it higher enough than that. It's it, just one of the greatest things you'll ever do. They like to have you seat belted in. Well, I was so excited shooting. I'm leaning out of my hot air balloon and I got my two, three cameras and whatever I'm doing. Midway of the thing, I'm leaning and leaning. And I realized that my seatbelt had fallen off. So I'm leaning out of this thing going, you know, but it was I got to tell you, Charles, you see the wildebeest migration at sunrise from above. You just can't even imagine the dust they were kicking up and the rays of light as it came through. It was just like, 
as a photographer, it doesn't get any better than that. You just just can't even believe the stuff you were seeing. Flying over ponds with, you know, watering holes with a whole school of hippos. And so it was, I was seeing everything. And it was giving me a context of the scale of what the Serran era is, what the Serengeti, what the real migration looks like. And those things kind of inform you. I always say that the process as an artist is as you, you know, see things and everything kind of frames or it imprints you in a very unique way. I know that those things and that work that I do before I photograph affects my photographs in the end, you know, affects the way uh, I tell a story and the way I, I see um uh, wildlife and the way I try to capture very specific moments to sort of reinforce what I think is what it feels like to be there. I mean, for me, photography is really about that. It's about wanting to share with you the way I see the world. And I want you to experience what I see as it is, you know. And so day to night is really a window into my world, right? What I see. When you think of transport in a traditional sense in Africa, you think of the the Humvees or the Jeeps and that sort of thing. I love that you took a hot air balloon. Where did that idea come from? Was that something that was set up from your local guide or? Yeah, we had, you know, you know, I'd heard from friends who had done this and they said, you've got to do the hot air balloon. And I'm addicted to getting up above things. So I, you, you don't have to twist my arm for that, especially the quiet, being able to hear the animals, doing it at a sunrise. Where do I sign? And so I was down for it. It was beyond my expectations how beautiful it was. Absolutely beyond. Now, you never know which direction you're going to blow, you know, the wind and everything like that, the way it works. They have a good idea because they know the thermals in those areas. So, But again, it's a matter about where the animals are, the time of day and all the things that there's so many variables, like I said, that everybody's experience could be slightly different. But we were lucky. We had just an unbelievable experience doing that. And like I said, it it really was an inspiring uh, ride and, and made me just start thinking about sometimes when you see something that just blows your mind, it starts making you think, what do I need to make? Uh, as a photograph here that actually speaks to that, right? To that grandness, to that almost biblical quality that Africa has. And I think when I found the watering hole and I watched that hole over the couple of days, I felt that there was this um, incredible narrative that was happening between the animals. There's a sense of awe that is Africa. And I think awe is an interesting word because it's something I'm I'm fascinated by, and I love being able to capture awe if I can. My most successful images, there is a sense of awe in them in a way. There's a sense of wonder and almost disbelief that the world, you know, could actually look like that, but it does. There's definitely a sense of awe in that Serengeti photo. I have to say, you know, you mentioned a couple of things that I really enjoyed, which you said the variables, and you never know what you're going to get. What I love about this series and the photo is, you're setting yourself up to just sit in those 26 hours and experience whatever you experience. Exactly. That's something that we lack a lot of in this day and age. Charles, thank you. It's, it's, my work is kind of the antithesis of being constantly connected, of being constantly distracted. I am present looking at one thing for 24 hours, 36 hours. That's what I do. It's like a deep meditation, you know? The act of seeing for me is just joyful. I I just love looking. And so when I have a beautiful scene that's constantly changing, where things could happen in any given moment, and my fear, this is what's interesting, I think, about what my work has kind of evolved into. I have a fear. So my fear is of missing something, missing the moment. I've learned how to use that as a driver 
into hyper-focusing because I never know when something's going to happen in my picture. I, I say that I truly am a collector. I collect things in general, but I think in photography, I just love collecting moments. And so for me, once you're a collector, always a collector. And that's what I do. My eye moves like a clock face. You know, I just literally, my gaze moves like the hands of a watch, you know, through the scene. That's a message we need a lot more of in this day and age. I mean, I spent my summers, uh, you know, during my college time in, in Massachusetts on the South shore. Now just watch nice. ships. Now just sit there, yeah. you know, write, play a little guitar, but just spend hours watching ships and watching the ocean. I feel like very rarely does a human actually acknowledge where they are in a physical realm. It's a lot of the digital age. So I think that would be a tremendous experiment for, I wish everybody just had 24 hours yeah. to stand somewhere. No, no, I, I agree with you. I think it'd be, if there is somewhat of a silver lining through this experience, I think it is. And when we turn off all the, the industrial age and the, the greed of mankind and humanity to overproduce everything, to drive too many places, use too much oil, eat too much meat, all that stuff. When that all stops, as it's basically stopped for the last three months, the earth is, is restoring itself. It's like the air is getting cleaner. The water is getting cleaner. It's like this kind of amazing thing is happening. The other thing is the idea of bringing the world together in a way, you know, like we are now, we consider ourselves, so it's a global economy. Well, how about a global humanity? You know, uh, an idea that we all like care about each other, like you care about your neighbor. The potential for that I see as, as something that's inspiring, I think, and hopeful. And I, and I just hope we can learn from this, but harness this new good that's come out of this disaster, right? And make everybody understand that, wait a second, look at the power we have as a, a unified world, as opposed to a world filled with individuals, right? Yeah. We mentioned that elephant that just came into your left bottom frame and just finished that photo so well. What was it like being around the presence of an animal like that? It's humbling, to be frank. It's humbling. The way they move, the way they sound, the way the ground moves, almost shakes when they walk by you. I mean, you could actually feel the ground shake when she came across us. I mean, it was unbelievable. And it's all happening so quickly. And then when she drops that first foot into the water and you see the calm water just, you know, get that ripple. And it's just kind of, it's kind of magical. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. You just feel like, you know, when you see animals in the wild, it's, it's just so different. You know, I, I try to uh, explain to people that there's an inherent quiet in Africa. You know, when, when animals are out there, there's a, just a, a peacefulness to everything about that. Uh, for all that quiet, there is actually a whole symphony going on. It's a really interesting experience, especially, I think, for most people who live in cities to come in and experience a place like that. I'll never forget uh, driving along and um, uh, there was a car in front of us that they, you know, these tourists, they got too close to this giraffe and they cornered it. I don't think it was intentional, but they cornered the animal. And I'll never forget this because it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. I never got a picture of it. It lives in my mind forever. But this giraffe actually lowered its neck and pirouetted to change direction. So it actually lowered its neck like this and actually like a ballet dancer. You can't believe an animal that size could do that. One of the things you, you take away from it when you're, when you're there is the incredible grace that the animals have, the way they move, you know, from the, the childlike jubilance of a, of a baby um, uh, wildebeest when it's born. It's jumping around. <laughs> it's just, you know, doing all these crazy things. And you just see these parallels 
I'll tell you a, a really great story. Um, my first trip to Africa, I remember I was in a, a Jeep, the guides with me and we're seeing a whole family of, um, they were in palace and they were busy grazing. And, and I had my camera, you know, and my guide looks at me and he goes, Hey, he goes, you want to see their heads come up? And I'm like, I mean, sure. I don't want you to scream. And he goes, no, I don't have to scream. He goes, take your foot and just put it outside the truck. And I want you just to touch the ground with your toe. And so I take my foot. He goes, make sure you have your camera ready when you do it. So I positioned myself, had my camera up on him. I lowered my foot and touched the ground. As soon as my foot touched the ground, all their heads went up like this. It was as if I had broken an electrical field. That's how connected animals are to the earth. And that's what you really begin to understand when you go to Africa is that everything is connected. If you're patient and look enough, you can see how connected everything is. Great Adventures is lucky to have partners that share our love for a good story, like Whistlepig Whiskey. They're American rice perfected in the beautiful Vermont countryside. I've been to their farm, I've seen the process, and a lot of care goes into creating each glass. It's also the perfect nightcap after a day in the wild. Check them out on Instagram, at Whistlepig Whiskey. One of the other places I went to that was really extraordinary as an experience this was in the Falkland Islands. It was a place called Steeple Jason. And it's one of the furthest southern islands in the entire Falkland chain. So it's about an eight-hour boat ride from South Georgia Island. So it's, it's way, way out there. I spent about 10 days out there photographing uh, the black-browed albatross day to night. And I'd never been that far away. I'd never been to that part of the world and certainly not that far, you know, in terms of the southern hemisphere. And it was... Um, a game changer for me also because I felt like I was Robinson Crusoe journey to the center of the earth. That's what it was like. It was, it was, I probably, I don't know how many people have ever actually set foot on that Island 50, maybe, you know, it's that kind of a thing. There's uh, it's run by WCS. They have a single house there. You have to take um, a plane to Chile. And then from Chile, you take a, another small plane to a place called carcass, you have to overnight in carcass, and then you take a, almost a six-hour boat ride to get to Steeple Jason. Like a speedboat ride? No, not, not a speedboat. No, like no, no. Traditional it, uh, it's, uh, it was It was a, a re- retrofitted fishing boat. Oh, it's wow. a, basically a vomitron. And, um, you know, you need, you need the Dramamine, you need, you know, whatever. And, and I had the Dramamine with what we had good seas. Bad seas, I can't even imagine. And that can be a really a pretty rough area. In fact, we, we were there 10 days. And if we didn't get out the day we did, a major storm came in, we would have been stuck there for another two weeks. A boat only comes every two weeks type thing. So it's, uh, it's quite a place. And, you know, you, you get out there and you're, you know, uh, I remember um, my buddies at the Geographic said to me, I, I don't really love things that can kill me. You know, I'm not interested in like venomous spiders that can kill me. I don't like snakes that can kill me. I really am not interested in being eaten or attacked by anything. So I like places that generally don't have anything venomous that will kill you. So they said, you're going to love steeple, Jason, Stephen, because, you know, it's like there's no snakes or there's no like poisonous spike. Like, you know, they didn't mention this one uh, bird called a caracara, which is uh, in the raptor family. And so it's like a velociraptor. I mean, these things, I was there during what they call their breeding season. So they're breeding and they have their nests with their eggs. And if you get within 150 yards of a caracara nest, they will dive bomb you from like 300 feet in the sky. 
And I mean, like try to scalp you. And so I had to live with this fear every day that we're out there in this field and the car cars are just, and when you see one and you know they're that nasty and they hunt in packs, so they, they don't just attack you with one. They actually fly around you and they look to, they know where your eyes are. So they try to dive bomb you from the back of your head. So it was just like that part of it, that part of it was like, I had, let's just say I was watching like uh, Stranger Things uh, on my iPad regularly just to go to sleep at night because that was calming to me compared to my, my reality of Caracara's attacking me during the day. It's an eight mile uh, long island that we basically hiked. We walked the whole island. Uh, I had no map. I didn't know where the birds were going to be. So I had to find where the colony was. Um, wow. And so I found this colony and I found this view where it allowed me to, you know, look, you know, I, c- I couldn't build a scaffolding. I, I had no ladder, you know, so how do I, how do I do my day to night, which is normally elevated. So what I did was I found a, a view which had a pitch downward into the ocean. So from the highest point of that pitch, I could look down and I got the perspective like I was up, you know, 12 feet in the, in the air. And that worked for me. And, um, I just, uh, we, we carried eight cases of equipment through, and I can send you some of the background behind the scenes of this stuff because it was unbelievable. Please. Tussock is like a very thick weed that grows. It's a, a, like a tall grass almost. It's six feet high. And so when you walk into it, you essentially can't see where you are. You don't know where you're going. You don't know northeast, west, or south. You don't know anything. And so we had to hike through this tussock to get to this view. The physicality of what we do to get eight cases almost a, a mile in through that stuff, you can't even imagine what it was like. And by the way, once you're in, you're like stuck there, you know. And then we set up the camera. We had this great view. And thank God the car cars were leaving us alone. <laughs> I wasn't near a nest. That was the godsend. When I was doing the picture, I was not near a nest. We had an incredible rainbow at sunrise. I photographed for 36 hours from this view. Wow. And, uh, and then, of course, when you get a great rainbow, guess what else you get? A major rainstorm. So, you know, I've got videos of myself, like, literally laying in the rain as we're waiting for it to pass. But I got this photograph in the end of the day that captures this species. This, these birds are magnificent. I mean, they are – the wingspans are gigantic. They're the most efficient gliders in the world. Uh, the black-browed albatross actually expends less energy flying than it does sit, sitting on a nest. That's how efficient they are. And they are the most nurturing, caring parents you've ever seen. And in my picture, you can see a mother teaching a baby how to fly. You can see the whole relationship that they have in terms of the mating rituals. You get the whole story of this bird. And, you know, I was never a birder before I did this series, but I got to say I'm a birder now. You know, it really changed me. And, you know, it informed me also in a way I think birds are, you know, like they say, the old canary in the coal mine. You know, I think if we pay attention to the birds, if we can keep the birds alive, we have a way of keeping ourselves alive, too, because the birds know what's coming before it happens to us. You know, So know. true. So true. Yeah. So I wrap this thing up with two questions. If I handed you a plane ticket, it could go anywhere and you could do anything. Where would you go and what would you do? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a big world out there. Yes. Um, Right now, I'm rationalizing this pandemic, obviously, and what's been happening with it. I 
long for the day I can return and go back to Italy and, and see my friends in Italy because that's one of my favorite places in the whole world to be. I think in, in terms of where my work is going, I have a, a new series that I'm going to be doing. Uh, I've been given a grant by the Geographic on uh, in Canada, and I'm going to supposed to go to the Canadian Arctic in July to photograph uh, beluga whales. And so I'm uh, I'm really excited about that. I'm you know I'm I'm blessed in the sense that I'm I'm you know I'm supposed to be able to go to the thing. I'm doing the things that I really want to do. To be frank with you, I'm right now. It's really telling the story of uh, the endangered species. The last one's another tough one. It's sure. when I say the perfect sunset, what place comes to your mind? Oh, uh, that one is actually easier. Africa. I mean, when you're in a place called um, Lake Kariba, uh, it's, it's in uh, South Africa. And I'll never forget it. It was uh, where the Black Hunter White Heart was filmed, but Clint Eastwood did the remake. And uh, it's this place called Father Gill Island. And, you know, in that Lake uh, Kariba, it is unlike anything you've ever seen. When the sun sets, the water turns turquoise. And the sunsets are like fire engine orange and yellow. And it's just, it's like being on a Photoshop curve and just taking saturation and going like 100. You can't even believe, like your eyes can't register the color. That's how intense it is. And I remember this, I was there, I'm going back 25 years ago, okay? That's how long ago I was there. And, and, and it was, I was shooting film. And I remember getting my film and I thought, God, what the hell did I do here? Was I on acid? Or but, but it actually looks like that. It really, really looks like that. It's one of those places that as far as the sunset goes, I've never seen anything quite like that place. So that if you said to me, epic sunsets, I'd say Lake Kariba in Africa. That was pretty epic. Thanks for listening, guys. If you like what you heard, hit subscribe and leave a quick review on iTunes. Suggest it to a friend who could use a little travel inspiration. If you have a travel question or suggestion on someone I should chat with, just hit me up on my social channels at Charles Thorpe and at Adventure Podcast. New episodes will be dropping every Friday, so keep checking in for the next. Until then, safe travels.